what I'd like to do right now, we got everything taken care of, all that business taken care of. What I'd like to do right now is uh, Scott and some of the members of his family are with us today. So Scott's going to give an update on his situation, and then we're going to pray over him, specifically for him, for his family, for what God's doing. Scott, come on up. I don't know how much this I'll get through this morning, so, but words just can't really express the, the love and the care that my family and I have felt over the past three weeks as we have just received all the expressions of love that we have from you. So just thank you for every single bit of that, and thank you for your prayers that have been so so specifically and graciously answered in many, many, many ways. Uh, Just as an update, I just have stage six melanoma cancer in the brain and several organs in the body, and that's a whole complicated thing, and we'll go through all of that, and lots of stuff to figure that out is ongoing, and we'll continue, and that'll be a process, and appreciate um, your prayers along the way of that, but please do know that my healer will or not will not be god and not the doctors but it will be him and he will be the one that i will be looking to you to to through um all of that and he has just been so good so far, and he will continue to be that. My heart's desire is just that our prayers would not limit the glory that God can receive from this affliction, that you would just continue, that he would just move and use this as he has already so faithfully done. Please know that God has been better to me in the past three weeks than ever before. And it is very, very well with my soul. Thank you, church family. I love you. All right. Um, This is not limited to elders. If you want to come up here and be a part of this prayer time, show up, come up here, and be with us right now. Anyone at all who wants to come up here and be a part of the prayer time, please come on up. And if we all come up, the more the merrier. Good time of prayer. Really good stuff, guys. Really good stuff. All right. In our, in our um, study of experiencing God, which I believe... 
that I don't think that it is any small thing or any coincidence that God has us as a church going through this particular study and he's brought some of the things across our path that he's brought through our path as individuals and as a church. And, then, but in, and in connection to that, I just want you to know that we're doing this study here on Sunday mornings and in your groups and as a church because of Brubaker. You know, and so it's kind of like, you know, not that he knew what was coming, but like he came to the elder council maybe a year ago and just said, we really need to do this. And so, you know, only God puts together these crazy plans and these crazy things and draws them together for beauty, you know. And so this week we're in, in this part right here of our study in our book, you know, is obey and experience. And, and so you come to know God by experience as you obey him and as he accomplishes his work through you. Recently, I've mentioned to you that I've been reading from the book of Ezekiel, or I had been and all. And it was interesting early in, in my reading that some things came out. Now, a little bit about Ezekiel. He was a prophet who was taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar, and that's where he lived the rest of his life there. Um, most of his ministry was um, uh, denouncing the sin and the idolatry and the evil of Judah, of his people, of the Israelites, and, um, and preaching repentance to them. And that was the bulk of his ministry. His life was a living illustration. I mean, um, living illustration. But in chapter 3, some things stood out to me. And I just started marking them down when I read it, thinking, I'll use this one of these days. And so in our sermon discussion group this week, as we were processing, I was processing that particular chapter this came to my mind, and so I wanted to, to use it for today. And so in, chapter, in Ezekiel 3, you don't have to turn there because I'm, we're just going to skirt through it a little bit. But in Ezekiel 3, God begins to tell Ezekiel, you know, um, quote-unquote, one of these days a guy named Blackaby is going to write a book, and it's going to be about experiencing God, and I'd like for you to begin to do that right now with me. So let me tell you what my plan is, all right? And so he says this. In verses 1, 4, and 11, he says, Go and speak. In verse 6, he says, I have sent you. In verses 8 and 9, he says, I have made you. In verse 9, he says, don't be afraid. In verse 10, he says, take my words with you. You know, I told you I didn't want to open up that passage. I do want to open up that passage. I want to just read that text for us really quickly, all right? So he says, then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat the scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So in other words, take my words ingest them, make them yours, pour over them, put them in your life, build them into your life, take this, and I'm going to send you with it. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with the scroll which I am giving to you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. And then he said to me, Son of man, go, there's a go, go to the house of Israel, speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel. He's saying, I'm not sending you to someone who won't understand you. I'm not sending you to somebody that you don't know or that you don't understand their customs. I'm sending you to your own people. They understand you. They know what I'm talking about. They know what you're talking about. You get it. All right? And then he says, Nor to many peoples of unintelligible speak or difficult language whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be listening, will not be willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Verse 8, I have made you your face. I have made. I have made your face as hard as their faces, and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. 
And like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, though they are a rebellious house. So you see here, God's prepared him, gave him the words, prepared his, you know, made him, says, I've made you hard. I prepared you for what you're about to go and do. Moreover, he said, Son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I shall speak to you and listen closely. And then he sends them to the exiles, the sons of the people, to speak to them and tell them what the Lord of God says. So he says in the model of our study, I have, I have a plan. I have a work. Do you want to come be part of it? This is what it looks like. I'm going to take you and I'm going to send you to people that you know and they're not going to listen to you. Matter of fact, they're not going to like you. Matter of fact, it's not going to go well for you at all. But I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm going to make you as hard and as difficult as, you know, they go. I prepared you for this, he says. So, he goes. And for about 18 years, he speaks, he instructs, he prophesies, and they never repent. They remain stubborn to the very end. There's another guy similar to Ezekiel named Jeremiah. You're probably familiar with him. Maybe you're named after him. Maybe you named somebody after him. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was similar. He was a prophet that was sent to the people in exile, in captivity, for, I mean, in Israel, then in captivity. And those that he was speaking to, they didn't want any part of it either. God sends him, gives him his plan, invites him in. He obeys, he goes. And they plot against his life. He at one time is in shackles and imprisoned. Another time he's thrown into a pit. He is mocked. He's ridiculed for obeying. And in the course of his ministry, which was rather lengthy, no repentance, no change of the people he was sent to minister to. Then think about this guy. You know him. Matter of fact, there's been a major motion picture made about him, so you know him. I'm sorry, that was Noah. Forget that, yeah. Uh, Jonah's right around the corner. I mean, just think of the special effects you can do with that. Yeah. Jonah, God says, hello, hello, Jonah. I've got a plan for you. I'd, I'd like you to be involved in what I'm doing. Can you would like to be a part of my work? Jonah says, no. No, no thank you. I don't like your plan. I don't like your work. I'm not really interested in that. No, thank you. He goes, let me just tell you what the plan is. I want you to go to Nineveh, the people you hate, the oppressors, those people. I want you to go to them and preach repentance so they may be saved. No, thank you. I'm not interested in that plan. So he runs. He rebels. And God is relentless in his pursuing of his people. In this particular case, he worked in a very unique fashion, as you know. And he delivered him via a water taxi, a large well, to Nineveh. And so still, in a begrudging way, he preaches to Nineveh. Remember what we just said about him. Disobedient. I don't want to be a part of your plan. I'm running away. This is not what I want to do. I don't like this. I don't want this to happen. But I'll preach. And they respond. The city repents, and God foregoes the destruction of the city. 
Now, if all that wasn't enough, this dude then gets angry at God for fulfilling his promise. And he says, I can't believe you would do that. And then he sulks and he pouts because God did what he said he was going to do. So he's not only rebellious on the front end, he's rebellious on the back end too. But God rewarded his ministry. In Matthew 20, there's a parable of the workers in the vineyard. And in that parable, early in the morning, they go to find workers in the vineyard, and they bring them in, and they say, if you'd like to work all day today, we'll pay you a denarius, which in that time and frame, it was a good wage. And so a group of workers came and began to work. Sometime in, around midday, they said, we need some more workers. Go back out and get them. So they went out and got them, and they came in to go to work. Sometime in the middle of the afternoon, they said, we still need some more workers. Go out and get a few more to finish up the day. At the end of the day, everyone was paid the same wage. Whether they worked all day long, or whether they worked a half a day, or whether they only worked out the last part of the day, everyone was paid the same wage. Seems a little unfair, doesn't it? Seems like, you know, what is the system, what is the standard we're working with here? What is it, God, about that you would reward somebody who only worked a little bit the same way you rewarded somebody who worked all day? You know, consider, you know who that is? He used to go to this church. (laughs) Vincent Van Gogh. Vincent Van Gogh, in his life, sold one painting. Only one. For approximately $109. Only one. Yet he painted over 900. And it wasn't until after his death that he became considered one of the most important and influential painters in history. And his paintings recently have sold for as much as $100 million. You'd recognize some of them. There's that up there, flowers, field, starry night. That's his work. You know that whether you know him or not, probably. In his life, he never knew the influence or the wealth that came with his work. Just doesn't seem fair, does it? So consider each one we've talked about. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Jonah, the the vineyard workers, Van Gogh. Each one of them. Jeremiah and Ezekiel obeyed with no results, no reward. Jonah rebels and still sees result from his ministry. The vineyard worker that started in the morning got paid what he was promised, but the vineyard worker that started in the afternoon got the same wage. Van Gogh. He died poor, suffering. And it was only later that he became famous and influential. What of any of these seem fair or right? Who among us want to serve faithfully and obediently and see no reward and no response? Yet that is exactly 
what many of us will probably get, probably most of us. Very few of us are Billy Graham and have the opportunity to see thousands walk the aisle to his invitation. You know, none of us probably in this room that I know of so far have written a book that has been distributed around the world multiple, 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 multiple times and has heard the testimony of its influence in lives around the world like Rick Warren has. Most of us will go through our lives with very little sense of the, the complete span of influence and impact our life has had. Most of us would be faithful with little sense of why am I doing this? What is this counting toward for eternity? I think that's why sometimes it's really hard to find people who says, I would love to show up at 6.30 and set up chairs in a church. You know, our, our guys don't come that early. But, you know, some churches do. They have to start really early. I would love to stay until 1.30 and help take down chairs because it seems like it's hard to find the eternal value in that. The one that we, I think we're still currently working with, I'm not sure, Pat, the one that is, it's hard to figure out exactly what is the value of wiping bottoms? Why is that important? You could use me in a lot better places, I can assure you. And so there's so many places and things that happen in the context of church and of life that seem unimportant, that seem like they never get noticed, that seem like they never get rewarded, that seem like you wonder how they fit in the scheme of things. So we're left with this question. What does it mean, what does it look like to be successful when you're involved in God's plan? You know? When God has invited you into his work, and you step into it, how do you know that you're being successful? Do you think that Ezekiel spent 18 years preaching and having no response and felt like he was, this is really working well, Lord. I'm liking this. It's really fun to serve you. Jeremiah, as he was in a pit, as he was in the stocks, as he was in shackles. Did you feel like he was like going, this is going great, God, let's do some more of this. Do you think that when you get the news that you have cancer, that you're thinking, this is a great plan. I like where this is going to go. And yet, those are the places he leads us, is it not? So how do we know when he begins to take us down one of these paths? What it's supposed to look like, what success is supposed to look like, what I know I'm doing the right thing here is supposed to look like. In our flesh, we as people, especially Western, uh, you know, Americans, for who we are, we think that when we do the right thing, it should result in good stuff. I believe that Christians are far more karma-oriented than we'd like to admit. Do the right thing, you get right things back. That's karma. I think that we as Christians are far more 
karma than we realize. So, and, and, and even you think about it, that is one of the big questions. I mean, people write books, and they're famous because they wrote a book to try and answer the question, why does bad things happen to good people? Because in our economy, in our way of our worldview, good people get good things. That's why so many of us at one time believed, and perhaps some of us still believe, that I'm a good person, I deserve heaven. Because the standard of value is based upon me. And so if I'm a good person, there's no reason why God can't let me into heaven. If I'm a good person, there's no reason why I should be excluded from this place that's supposed to be full of goodness. And yet that is not the standard of value. That's not the thing that, that's not the, the way that economy works with God. It's not on our goodness, it's on his holiness. And that's why our goodness is not enough. That's why only being holy like him is enough to get us into a relationship with Christ and is only enough to get us into heaven and is only enough to get us into eternal things. And so you have to ask, all right then, so explain to me this, Lord, how does chronic illness, how does brokenness, how does cancer, how does MS, how does you fill in the blank that your life is experiencing Say, how does that fit into your plan, and when should I know this is going well? See, again, many of us would say, you know what? Any of that can happen, and we'll know it's going well when God has healed us. We all know someone who loved the Lord who didn't get healed. Does that mean it didn't, that they were unsuccessful? Does that mean that they didn't understand the plan? Does that mean that they did something wrong that kind of disqualified them from the healing part of the plan? This is what I think the plan looks like. This is what I think success looks like. I think it boils down to obeying. I think that's what it comes down to. He calls us into a plan. He calls us into a work with him. And he says to Ezekiel, come on. This is what I want you to do. Go and preach this message to these people. They're not going to respond. And so what did it look like for Ezekiel to have success in that scenario? I'm going to preach. No one's going to respond. This is a great plan. How do I know when it's working, Lord? Obey. There'll be days when I give you something to say, you go say it. That's success. Obey. That's success. For Jeremiah, how did he know it was working? Because he obeyed. And then go right all the way to where we should go, and that's in the context. How did we know that it worked for Jesus? When he said in the garden, he said, if there's any other way possible, if there's anything else we can do, can we do that right now? And about that time, the guard showed up and took him into captivity. When he, on the cross, he said, he, he, in anguish, he cried out, you, why have you forsaken me?
Did it look like it was going well, that he was succeeding in that moment? It didn't look that way. But obedience does not look like success by our standards. Obedience on God's standard and in his economy is very different. There's a, an exchange rate that happens, you know? Like, you know, you, we say, well, how much is the dollar worth toward the euro? Well, there's an exchange rate that happens from what we think is important, what we think success is, and what God says success is. There's a difference. The, they are not equal. They are not one for one. You have to trade in our definition for his definition. And his definition, I really believe, is obedience. That's what it looks like, church. That's what it looks like to each and every one of us. That his definition of success when we're doing his plan, when we're involved in his work, is not that people are going to come and throw and in throngs. Is not that people are going to say, that is great. Is not that people are going to respond when you teach or when you sing or when you pray or when you preach. It's not that people are going to come to you and say, I want to be a part of this plan. It's going to be that you went day in and day out and you obeyed to whatever the plan was for that day. And you know what? It's not about big deals. And, and it's not about like evangelism campaigns. It's not about like, like saving babies from burning houses. It's about today. Am I going to be faithful to my spouse today? That's his plan. That's one of his plans that you're called to if you're married. Am I faithful today? That's his plan. Am I going to... And you fill in the blank. You know for a fact that there are so many things that he's called us to that he's saying, this is what I want you to do today. And they're just very small things in the realm of life. And you have to do them day over again and again and again. And he says, obey me in this and you'll be successful. It might not look like it. It might not feel like it, but it is. Just doing what we're told is being, and, and obeying is what he's looking like. That's what Jeremiah did. So Jeremiah's ministry was successful. That's what Ezekiel did. That's, his ministry was successful. Even Jonah was successful. We are called today to obey when he's put a plan or work in front of us. Consider this. Look at this passage here. The very last words of this passage, Matthew 9, he says, he says um, he's talking about the harvesting. And he says, the Lord of the harvest. He says, sin workers, but the Lord of the harvest the one who takes care of the harvest, the one who brings them in, you're supposed to go out and do the work, I'll bring in the harvest. You go do the work, I'll bring in the harvest. We have no promise or indication that we'll know that those of, of how many we've influenced. We have no promise or indication of like that people think we're doing the right thing. We, we just don't always know all that. And, there'll be, and, and, and I really do think that there are an awful lot of spiritual Van Goghs among us who were active, who are faithful, who are obeyed, but in this life, they'll never know the impact, the influence of what that obedience looked like. How he uses us, the impact we have, the influence we have, 
is all in his hands. He just calls us to obey. Join us, joining God in his work and his plan does not mean that we get the wage that we think we should get. Most of us are the worker who started in the early part of the day. And most of us think that we earned a particular wage, and it's unique to us. And yet the master of the vineyard says, I'll pay anyone what I want to pay them. I'll reward anyone what I want to reward them. So some will see their ministry effectiveness. Some will see the effectiveness of being obedient to the Lord. Others might not. Not in this life. Not now. But we have these promises. Hebrews 6 says this, God is not unjust to forgive, to forget your work and the love you have shown toward his name in, in, in having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Ephesians 6, I mean, Hebrews 6 there says, God's not going to forget about what you're doing. He notices it. He's going to see it. And then later on in Hebrews, he says this. Sorry, it's a long passage. This is Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. All these died. He's talking about all these people who were considered heroes of the faith. Look at what he says here. All these died without receiving the promises. Did you catch that? All these died without receiving the promises. Later on in this passage, he says, they were sawn into, they were thrown in pits, they were fed at the lions, they were ripped in half. These people. Those who were faithful, those who were obedient, that's what they got, he says. He says, all of these died in faith without receiving the promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. So in other words, they saw the promise, and they welcomed it, and they were eager for it, but it was in a distance, and they knew it. They had a feeling that they were not going to get it in this life. They understood that. They understood that this life was not a life about rewards, about, about, about seeing um, payback. They realized that the next life was what that was about. And so they welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on this earth, they knew that in this earth was not their place. They knew that they were strangers here, and that this was not the place to get the reward that they were deserving, the reward that, that God would give them. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And, if, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you get that? He says, those who understand that you're not getting in this life, but there's another life coming, and there's another, and it's a better life, and that you saw that life, and you did everything you did in this life for that one, that is the one that God is not ashamed to be called their God. That is the one that last week we talked about. Lose your life now so you'll have life in abundance. That doesn't mean in this life you don't get some perks. That doesn't mean in this life that you still have joy. You can have peace. You get to sleep at night, right? You get to have a clear conscience. It doesn't mean in this life that none of those things are true. But in this life, all of those things are, might be true, but they are still tarnished. And they're still nipped away at. Saying, is that true? Do you really have hope? In this life, it's all tarnished. There's another life coming, though, when none of that will be the case. There will not be any tarnishing. There will be no mold. There will be no 
taking it away. And the next life, it is eternal. It is unblemished. And that's when our reward comes. That's when we are acknowledged. And no, I don't really believe that in the next life what's going to happen is that you're going to get a stat sheet that says, all right, this is great. Let me just tell you, you know, like a football player does, baseball player, you had a 300, you know, average batting, you know, or you had this many catches for this many touchdowns and you average this many yards, you know. We're not going to get anything like that. What we're going to get is, well done, good and faithful. What we're going to get, he says, is crowns. What are you going to get is, he says, you'll rule with me. You'll have responsibility. You'll have authority. That's what we'll get in the next life. But even better than that, even better than that, we will get him. In Genesis, he says this to Abram. Abram, do not be afraid. I am like a shield to you. I am your great reward. I am your great reward. It's me. It's not this land I'm taking you to. It's not the descendants that you're given. It's not the promises I've given you. I am your great reward. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that in this life we are broken down, we are beaten down, but we are not. We are not broken. We have to, if we are going to accept God's invitation to go to work with him, we're going to accept God's invitation to step in and be a part of his plan. We have to accept, we have to adjust you know, the crisis of belief, the adjusting things and all, for us to step into obedience with him, it means this. We have to adjust what we think is going to come from that. We have to quit believing in karma, and we have to realize that I'm going to obey in this life with no promises of anything happening because in the next life I know all kinds of things are going to happen. I don't fully understand it. I can't really imagine it. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know it's good. I know it's better than anything I could ever have in this life. That's what I'm serving for now. That's, the, that's what I'm doing in this plan. And this plan and this work that I'm doing right now, I'm doing it all for what's going to come in the next life. The reward of our faithfulness and our obedience is not a happy family. It's not cancer-free. It's not health, wealth, or prosperity. Well, any of these, some people might get but the real reward is him, is him. And in this life, we have him some. and the next life, we will have him totally. It's him. That's the reward. That's what we serve for. He is our pay. He is our salary. He is our great reward. In this life, some of us will know that we've had an impact. Most of us won't. Keep our eyes on the next life. Keep our eyes on what he's giving us in the next life. Let's pray.
Father, our vision, our expectations, our desires really are so much of the time consumed by ourselves. And you are constantly nudging us to let go of all that we have in this life. As the verse said, to let go of the old place and begin to embrace a new place. To let go of the expectation that because I open my mouth, throngs will respond. To let go of the expectations that when I obey, someone ought to notice it and acknowledge it. To let go of the expectations that when I serve, there ought to be some kind of feedback about that. Transition us from that way of thinking and from that self-centeredness to a way of thinking that says that in this life I will serve selflessly. I will lay down my life daily and pick up my cross and follow you, denying myself, so that in the next life I might receive my full recompense from you and you alone. We cannot serve two masters. Help us to break away from that other master. Help us to stop expecting that we'll be healthy, that our bills will be paid. Help us to stop expecting that anything should happen in this life at all. But in the next life, we'll get everything and so much more. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us, for your long-suffering. I know that I'm not nearly as patient with others as you are with me when you're teaching us these important principles. You are so, so good to us. Hmm. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.